Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo and this is Novel Conversations. This week's Novel Conversation is about the novel The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. And I'll talk about The Sun Also Rises with our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. Ildi, Scott, welcome to Novel Conversations. Thank you. Thank you. Before we get started, let me just give you a quick summary, as I see it, of the novel The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. Published in 1926, The Sun Also Rises was Hemingway's first published novel. Through the narration of the main character, Jacob, or Jake Barnes, The Sun Also Rises seeks to portray the lives of the members of the Lost Generation, a group of men and women whose early adulthood was consumed by World War I and its aftermath. In a post-war France and Spain, where the traditional values of morality, love, and manhood have changed or been shattered, the Lost Generation's search for new purpose and meaning in a world they no longer recognize make up the story of The Sun Also Rises. Scott, was this the first time you read The Sun Also Rises? This is the first time for The Sun Also Rises. I've read a lot of other Hemingway, many times in some cases. How did you like The Sun Also Rises? I enjoyed it very much. It has a lot of how much he loves nature, fishing in particular, anything dangerous, anything macho. The book is full of these things. The word's never mentioned, but machismo. Correct. Absolutely. Ildi, how about you? First time for The Sun Also Rises? This is my first time reading The Sun Also Rises. I did read For Whom the Bell Tolls. Did you enjoy this one? I did. I particularly liked how it came in little vignettes rather than one long continuing storyline. I've heard it said that women might not always find Hemingway so accessible or so enjoyable. There are misogynistic strains in the novel, especially with the character Brett. However, I wouldn't consider Hemingway a woman hater. Brett is the main female character in the novel. And she certainly does torture the men. She's not a loser in this situation, is she? No, in fact, she is quite the heroine and love object of many different men. However, she seems to destroy them all. I just wanted to run the title by you, The Sun Also Rises. Did you happen to figure out where that quote came from? The quote is from Ecclesiastes and describes how the sun rises, the sun sets, just as the earth will be around forever, you know, that life will go on. So no matter how much change there occurs in the world, it's going to continue? Yes. The one thing I thought is Jake always rises to the occasion. No matter what's going to happen to his friends, Jake is always there to save the day. Scott, our novel begins with a narrator, and he first tells us about Robert Kahn. What do we know about the narrator, and then what are we told about Robert Kahn? Initially, you know very little about the narrator. We don't even have a name yet, do we? Correct. Not till the end of the first chapter, maybe the start of the second chapter, do you hear his name. He's talking about, initially, Robert Kahn, and then from there about other characters as you go along. He seems to be dodging around various things about himself. He really doesn't see himself as going anywhere or being anything special. We're talking about the narrator here. The narrator. And really, you don't know why until a couple chapters in, you find out he 
is somewhat in love with a character named Brett. All right, well, wait, let's stop here before we get on to our other characters. Let's talk about the narrator. Introduce him and give me his name. The narrator is Jacob Barnes, but he usually goes by Jake amongst all of his friends. He turns out to be a newspaper writer working in Paris. He is an American by birth. He served in World War I and was injured, and he stayed in Paris after the war. He has various friends from England, from Paris, from Spain, and a lot of Americans who come to visit him in France. Ildi, tell me then what Jacob Barnes has to say about our first character, Robert Kahn. Well, Jacob tells us that Robert Kahn is a middleweight boxing champion. He was a Jew who went to Princeton, and that plays into how his character was formed. His father was powerful and his mother was rich. That's right. So by birth, he gains a name and wealth. But Jake describes him as utterly forgettable. By the time we've met him, he's done a few different things in his career and his life. When we meet him, he has already been married once to the first girl who ever was nice to him out of college. He was married for four years, and she left him for a miniature painter. He is with a woman named Frances right now for the past three years. They were in America for one of those, and then they've come to Europe for the last two because that's where she was educated, and that's where she kind of dragged him. So he's just following along. And is he living off her money, or is she living off his money? I wasn't sure about that. I believe she She's living off of his money because they say he's pretty much spent his $50,000 that he's inherited from his father. There's a clear sense that Khan is always left out and on the outside. In college, he was specifically labeled as Jewish, and so he took up boxing so he could clobber the guys that would make comments about that. And he gets married, his wife leaves him. Then he falls into the literature circle. I have the sense that he didn't fit in anywhere, but in the literature circle, if you have money, people will follow along and you can support their projects. And that's really what he did until he does finally get a book published himself, which is described as nothing special, but did get published. And it does give him a little bit more money to spend. Right. And when he gets it published, he goes back to America, where it is received even more highly than it was in Europe. And all these girls start looking at him. And he gets this sense of, hey, maybe I'm not so bad. And when he comes back, Francis, his girlfriend, is slighted a little bit because he's got this new arrogance about himself. Jacob describes him as someone who you really didn't want to be around anymore. He sort of realized now that he has something to offer women. As you said, he'd married the first girl that had ever been nice to him. Now he's out there trying to find women he could be nice to. Exactly. Scott, do you get the impression from this early narration that Jake likes Robert Kahn? Jake seems to enjoy Robert's company, at least to some degree. They play tennis together a lot. He even describes himself as his tennis friend. There's something else they do a lot of, isn't there? Drinking. They're constantly going out and drinking. Heavy, heavy drinking. And they never seem to finish one drink at the same place. By the time they finish one, they're on to the next place. But Scott, they are friends enough to talk about taking a sporting vacation together. Correct. Robert goes to Jake saying, let's go to South America. and We'll hang out and live life to the fullest. And Jake doesn't want to go. But instead, let's go to Spain. We'll fight the bulls. Robert is pretty insistent upon Jake wanting to go to South America. Let's go away. Let's go away. However, Jake finally tells him, he goes, you can't get away from yourself by moving from one place to another. And it seems significant because that's what the entire book is. They go from one place to another. So is Jake lying to us or is he lying to himself and to Robert? I think he's lying to everyone, especially to himself. So, Ildi, as they go back and forth, Spain, South America, Spain, South America, they decide, let's go have a drink. But at some point during the night, Jake and Robert get separated, and that's when Jake introduces us to the next character in our novel, the Lady Ashley. 
That's right, Frank. But before we meet Lady Ashley, Jake is sitting at a cafe watching the pretty girls walk by, and he catches one of their eyes, and she comes over and plops herself right down with them, and he asks her what she's going to have to drink, and she says a per note, and he says, well, that is not a drink for good girls. <laughs> and she says, I'm not a good girl. Exactly. But he knew that, didn't he? I think so. And then she gives him a great big toothy grin, and he realizes why she shouldn't smile all that much. (laughs) But he does say she's pretty when she doesn't smile. That's right. And it's at this point they go to another bar for another drink, catch up again with Robert Kahn, and we meet Lady Ashley. Well, they're having a swell time. They meet some other people there. And then all of a sudden, this lovely woman comes in with a whole bunch of guys. He describes her as being absolutely beautiful and that all the men are looking at her, and she's got a boyish haircut. And she's wearing a cocked fedora, I think they say. Yes. That can be an attractive look. (laughs) It can be if it's done properly, I guess. (laughs) No comment there. (laughs) What do we learn about Lady Brett Ashley right then? Lady Brett Ashley comes in with a whole bunch of men, and it's clear that she's with them, and this obviously angers Jake. So it makes it clear that Jake and Lady Brett Ashley, or Brett, have a previous relationship. But we don't know anything about this relationship. Jake, as the narrator, has not told us anything. Correct. We do, though, find out that Robert Kahn is meeting Brit for the first time, and he's smitten. Oh, absolutely. He falls head over heels. We read in the book, Lady Ashley stood holding the glass, and I saw Robert Kahn looking at her. He looked a great deal as his compatriot must have looked when he saw the promised land. Another Jewish reference, when Aaron saw the promised land at last after 40 years, this is how Kahn looks at Brett when he first sees her. Like a parched man in the desert. Yes. But Ildi, Jake and Lady Brett don't stay at the bar very long. Lady Brett doesn't like to stay in any one place for very long. So she tells Jake, let's get on out of here. So they take a cab. And this is where we find out that they have a serious previous relationship. They passionately kiss in the car. And Lady Brett is like, no, we can't do this. And you as the reader are wondering, well, why can't they do this? Why, you know? Scott, they exchange I love yous. Absolutely. And it's clear that Jake is incredibly sincere in this, but they just cannot make one another happy and stay together. But they're not giving us as readers any real information just yet. Correct. They just hint at things constantly. Hemingway is dancing around the story. Correct. And that's more or less how the story goes on for the next couple of days while they're in Paris. It turns out everyone's always going out drinking, and they always end up together at one point or another in the evening. And Brett even introduces us to a few other men in her life. The one that comes right to my mind now is the Count. The Count Mippipopoulos. He is a wealthy man who owns a chain of sweet shops in the United States. He truly is a sugar daddy. (laughs) He is, and she seems to be living off of his kindness for quite a while, and he seems to be just loving every minute of it. And he doesn't seem to care that she's in love with many men. He seems to just enjoy listening and watching her and pays for everything along the way. Scott, the relationship is a little strange. He buys champagne, brings it to Jake's apartment, and then leaves Brett and the champagne at the apartment. Brett makes a big deal about him being one of us. What that means exactly isn't quite clear, but it turns out he has fought in about a dozen different wars, including four revolutions, even has an arrow wound. Two arrow wounds. That go all the way through his torso. And he just enjoys life, which includes a lot of drinking and company of beautiful women. And he seems to have a stock of priceless champagne, and he even makes a deal. I actually don't like to drink champagne out of this size bottle. It's much better when it comes out of a Magnum, which is about four times larger than your standard bottle. 
but hard to cool in a basin of ice. Exactly. It's my impression that Hemingway only introduces us to the Count to tell us about Brett Ashley and the way she's living her life. We don't really ever see the Count again. You encounter him for a couple of days while they're in Paris. I kind of had a sense that the Count had a lot to teach Jake. He tells him, you just need to find the value of everything and enjoy it. He says, I ask nothing more from this bottle of champagne than to simply enjoy. And that's kind of what Jake needs to come to terms with in life. I thought someday, ideally, Jake is going to be somewhat like the Count, just enjoys beautiful, wonderful, tasty things, and that's it. And Ildi, I think you have a quote that illustrates this character of the Count. Yeah, the Count says, You see, Mr. Barnes, it is because I have lived very much that now I can enjoy everything so well. And he says later on that he is always in love, and that's what makes life great. Very good. And Ildi, it seems almost as quickly as we meet Lady Brett, she disappears again. She takes off. But before Brett leaves, Jake and her have a final passionate moment. She still cannot commit herself to him. And then she leaves to go to San Sebastian. And Scott, the next day we find out that Robert Kahn is also missing. Correct. But we don't know where he went. No, it's a question mark. But now that Hemingway's taken two of our characters off the scene, he introduces us to a new character. Bill Gorton. Scott, tell me a little bit about Bill Gorton. He has just arrived in Paris from Budapest, where he was on a long, drawn-out, drunken spree of watching boxing. There's a bit of a side note about how black boxers are treated in Austria and Hungary. Treated not well. Not kindly. The black boxer beats the white boxer and is booed and chased and ran out of town and not given the prize money either. Barely gets out with his clothes. Correct. Bill even has to loan him money to get home to his wife and kids. And Bill doesn't have a lot of money to be loaning out, does he? No, but he doesn't care. None of these folks have a lot of money. They always seem to be worrying about the next allowance payment. Bill's kind of funny because he seems to just flaunt his money everywhere, and he doesn't have it. He owes money to everyone, and he'll eventually pay everyone back. They're not worried about that. It's just everyone enjoys his company. So tell me what Bill and Jake do the first night Bill's back in town. They go drinking. That's right. <laughs> but Scott, Jake's not happy to see Bill just to have his old drinking buddy back. No, not at all. In fact, this is an annual thing when Bill comes into town because they are preparing to leave for Spain. This is their annual fishing run with the bulls trip. They go fishing in the Pyrenees, and they go off to Pamplona for the bulls thereafter. But before we send Jake and Bill off on their fishing trip, we meet our final character in the novel. That's right. We meet Mike. And who's Mike? Mike is Brett's fiancé. Who would have known it? They are waiting to get married. Waiting for... They are waiting for Mike's family to front the money for her divorce from her last husband. What makes this scene so interesting is right after we meet Mike Campbell, find out he's the fiancé of Lady Brett Ashley, we find out who Lady Brett Ashley was with when she went to San Sebastian. It was not her fiancé. She was in San Sebastian with Robert Kahn. That's where Robert Kahn went. Uh. And that's why he didn't tell Jake. And Ildi, now this fishing trip looks even more interesting. It's going to be a little bit awkward with Mike and Brett, the fiancés, going with Robert Kahn, who has just come back from San Sebastian with Lady Brett, and Jake, who's in love with Brett. And let's just be clear, Mike knows all about Robert, he knows all about Jake, but he'll go fishing anyway. He's okay with Lady Brett. He likes her style. We said that all of our characters were going to go on this fishing trip, but they don't all go together and they don't all get there at the same time. Through the narration of Jake Barnes, we follow the trip of Jake and Bill. Basically, they get on a train. And they drink. And then they get on a bus. And they drink some more. But this time from wineskins. Correct. They're taught by the Basques on the bus. 
And then they travel by private car. And they drink. And finally we get to Pamplona. And they drink some more. <laughs> and it's in Pamplona that Bill and Jake hook up with Robert Kahn. Yes, he's been waiting for them there. And now they're going to wait for Lady Brett and Mike so that they can all head off for their fishing trip. Exactly. But the best laid plans... Never work out. Kahn doesn't think they're going to arrive. Does he know Brett's coming with Michael Campbell? He knows that, except I think he has a romanticized version of Brett in his mind thinking that when she gets there, things are just going to work out with himself and Brett. How do Jake and Bill take to Robert's romantic moonings? They're irritated. In fact, Bill bets Kahn that they are going to show up this night, and Kahn bets back that they absolutely will not. Well, Ildi, why would Robert Kahn bet that they're not going to show up? I think in Robert's mind, he thinks that Mike is going to hold Brett back, that he might lose her to Khan. And really, Jake and Bill get fed up with this, don't they? Absolutely. And they leave. Bill and Jake are going to go on fishing. By themselves. And that's what they do. Mm -hmm. They leave a Robert Khan in Pamplona, and they take another bus with more drinking to Burget. And they're going to have a much better time without them. And they do have a pretty darn good time. In fact, it's probably the only time where the main character is completely at rest and at peace and happy with life. They actually do what they said they were going to do. They fish. And drink. But the drinking is different. When they go fishing, the drinking is relaxed. It's sociable. They're not drinking to get drunk. They're drinking to taste the wine and to enjoy each other's company. Right. Some of those other drinking binges were almost competition. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to dull themselves to their problems, their fears, their anxieties, everything. But on this trip, they're using it to enhance their experience. Exactly. It's the only time in the book where they actually have normal conversations, where they talk about their emotions. You never see any true emotion emerge except on this fishing trip where they tell each other that they enjoy each other's company, that they, in essence, love each other. It is a marvelous time as Jake is finally at rest. They're fishing every day. It's calm, relaxed. There's memories of childhood, how he wraps the trout inside of the fern leaves to keep them cool all day long. Very simple, fun life. You know, what struck me when I reread this novel, I always think of this novel as the Pamplona running with the bulls story. But in fact, the descriptions of the fishing, and as you said, the nature, the peacefulness, is really more of the story than the running with the bulls. That's right. It's the only time in the novel where you find rest. And even though it is all this rest and relaxation and a coming about of emotions, when they're hiking up to the fishing hole, Hemingway says the whole time they heard cattle in the woods. And I thought, hmm, maybe that's foreshadowing that the bullfighting is still to come. There's still danger. There's still something out there. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. And Ilda, you mentioned that it's at this time where Bill and Jake really talk to each other and listen to each other. That's right. And in fact, this is where we find out the backstory of Jake and Lady Brett, and we find out what Jake's injury is all about and how that's affected his life as well. Yeah, it turns out that fighting in World War I, Jake was severely injured. He was sent to England to be treated and to recover, uh, to convalesce. Presumably a groin injury of some sort. Yes, destroying a certain part of himself 
and is there while he's convalescing that he meets Brett, who is attending to the wounded soldiers. And he makes a comment that, I suppose she only wanted what she couldn't have because he could not satisfy her, so she wanted him. And she wanted to be satisfied. Precisely. And now we finally understand the underlying tension between these two characters. It kind of sets the stage for a rough love triangle where Kant loves Brett, Mike loves Brett, Brett loves everyone, and Jake loves Brett, but he can't be part of the circle because he can never truly love her the way she wants to be loved. Finally, we're getting some understanding about what's going on with some of our characters. Right. But let's get back to the fishing trip. All of our other characters never show up on this fishing trip. It remains Bill and Jake. Correct. But Ildi, while they're in town these five or six days fishing, they do run across a few fun characters, and you wanted to mention one of them. One of my favorite characters is a man named Wilson Harris. He's an Englishman, and he is also a veteran of World War I, and he has come to do some fishing as well. And Wilson Harris has a lot of fun with Jake and Bill. When Bill and Jake are leaving to meet the others in Pamplona, they try to convince Harris to go with them. He decides that he wants to stay to fish. And as a parting gift, he gives them an envelope full of flies. Hand-tied. Hand-tied fly-fishing flies. As any fisherman knows... That's a wonderful gift. That's right. And it's finally when Jake and Bill get back to Pamplona that all of our characters get together again. Right. And they drink. And drink some more. And then they go out and watch some fireworks sitting at the bar, drinking. It's while they're drinking at this point that, though Mike usually doesn't care about Brett's various rendezvous with other men, usually they don't stick around and linger. And Khan is always following Brett around at this point, always staring at her. And this starts to irritate Mike. Right. Mike's big complaint is not that Brett slipped off and had an affair with Robert Khan and San Sebastian. Big deal. It happens all the time. That's right. The big problem is that Khan is still hanging around her, mooning like a lovesick cow. Precisely. Or a steer, but certainly not a bull. No, steer are castrated cattle. Yes, they are. Which has many implications with a few of our characters. More than one of our characters may be a castrated bull. Exactly. Hmm. In fact, Scott Hemingway makes it very clear there's no implying that he's trying to make a connection between the steers and some of our characters. He comes out and really puts it right on the page. I think you have that quote. In fact, yeah, Jake says to Brett, they let the bulls out of the cages one at a time, and they have steers in the corral to receive them and keep them from fighting. And the bulls tear in at the steers, and the steers run around like old maids trying to quiet them down. And Brett asks, do they ever gore the steers? Sure, sometimes they go right after them and kill them. Brett asks again, can't the steers do anything? No, they're trying to make friends. Poor Jake. A little irony for you. A lot of irony for us. Brett also makes the comment to the steer, she says, they don't look happy. Surprise. And Hemingway's making it very clear that Jake is our steer trying to quiet down the bulls. Mike and Con. And also Pedro Romero. All right, well, let's talk about these bulls and this running with the bulls in Pamplona. Whenever anyone thinks of the sun also rises, these are the scenes they think of. Although, as I said, I think the fishing makes up a bigger part of the novel. These are some very great scenes, and it starts with the bullfighting and the matadors. Right. We're introduced to a hotel owner, Montoya, and he has a reverence for bullfighters and the bulls. He makes a big deal about whether fans are aficionados, which means you're not just a fan. You don't just like it. You really are passionate. You have the passion. And Montoya likes Jake very much because he is an aficionado. 
he has passion for the bulls and for the bullfighting. And they're hopeful because there's not been a good bullfighter for a long time. And they're hoping that there's one young man this year who really will have the passion to kill bulls as they should be killed. Romero. Who's Pedro Romero? He's our 19-year-old, handsome, prodigy bullfighter. And a true aficionado amongst bullfighters. And he now figures in our story because... Well, when he's fighting in the ring, Brett can't take her eyes off his green trousers. How does he get into those pants, she wonders. That's exactly what she's wondering. How do I get into those pants, she's wondering. (laughs) That's more like it. (laughs) Does she get into those pants? She does indeed. And how does this sit with our other bulls and steers? Well, I think Mike has settled himself to the fact that she is going to run off with people. Khan is still in denial that she would do something like this because I think he thinks that she would be in love with him. Khan even accuses Jake of being her pimp. By setting up the meeting between Romero and Lady Brett. Exactly. Which, in fact, Jake tries to convince Brett not to pursue the bullfighter. Why would he discourage that? Montoya, the owner of the hotel where they're staying, who loves Romero because he's such a true aficionado, doesn't want him to be spoiled by the corruptions of the world. Right. For Montoya, it's important that the bullfighters be pure in thought, pure in purpose, pure in their lives. Completely unspoiled, especially by women. And Jake feels the same way Montoya does. Jake is an aficionado. He does not want this bullfighter spoiled. He doesn't want the ideal to be ruined, even though, of course, he loves Brett. He sees what Brett's going to do to this kid. Right. In fact, to follow the analogy of the steers further, it seems that Brett is the bullfighter. She systematically slays all the bulls. Or if not slays them, at least... Takes away their passion. And maybe their manhood. I agree. All right, Scott, Ildi, we talked about the effect that Brett's affair with Romero has on Montoya and Jake, but it also has devastating effects for Robert Kahn, Mike Campbell, and Bill. Right. Mike starts to drink himself into oblivion because he knows that she's kind of slipping away from him for good at this point. And Robert Kahn has a very violent reaction. Robert Kahn basically goes crazy. He confronts Jake, knocks him out, punches Mike out as well. Then he barges into the room of Brett and Romero. In their love nest. He beats Romero to a pulp. Romero will not sit down, however. He keeps standing up to take another fist in the face. But not punching back. But never fighting back. And then Khan breaks down, asks to shake Romero's hand in forgiveness. He won't do it, and then he leaves. It is at this point that Khan seems to realize that he's lost Brett for good, that he was wrong from the very beginning, that she doesn't love him. He was just another one of her flings. And then what happens to Robert Kahn? Robert Kahn leaves to go to England to get back together with his old girlfriend, and he is not to be heard of again. And what about Bill and Mike and Jake? Bill goes back to Paris. Mike continues with his drunken festivities and virtual bankruptcy at all times to party along the coast in Spain. And Jake goes back to work in Paris when he gets a telegram from Brett. Come quickly. It's an emergency. And of course, being the steer Jake that he is. He rises to the occasion once more, takes the all-night train to Madrid. And what's happened in Madrid? He finds Brett there, who's kicked Romero out because she's not good for him. He wants to marry her and make her a decent woman, and heaven forbid, that's not Brett's style. And he was even very ashamed of her for a while, wanted her to grow her hair out so it would be more womanly. Be more modest. Yeah, essentially, this woman does not fit into the mold 
for the purposes of his life. Right. When Jake responds to Brett in his telegram, he finds it ironic how he signs his telegram. His telegram says, Lady Ashley, Hotel Montana, Madrid, arriving Suit Express tomorrow. Love, Jake. And then he seems to ponder that, and he goes, he sends a girl off with one man, introduces her to another to go off with him. Now go and bring her back, and I sign the wire with love. Poor Jake. (laughs) Poor, poor Jake. So our characters have now spread to the four winds. How does this novel end? The novel ends with Brett lamenting, oh, Jake, we could have had such a damn good time together. And then Jake thinks about it for a second, and the very last line of the novel says, yes, isn't it pretty to think so? Again, more irony. And yet, if you think about it, he is with her. He's the one she always goes back to. Well, and that's great for her. I'm not so sure that's going to be great for Jake. I think, in essence, it kills him on the inside. Yeah. He always rises to the occasion to be there when she needs him because he does love her and he can't get around that. No pun intended. (laughs) And in essence, I think that tells us the story of The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. This is our chance to talk about some moments we didn't have a chance to talk about or maybe read a passage or two that you enjoyed. you have something for us? I have some favorite passages involving Bill. He takes one little thing and beats it to death, and by the time you're done with it, it's very humorous. So he's walking with Jake, and he sees a taxidermy shop, and he says, Here's a taxidermist. Want to buy anything? A nice stuffed dog? Come on. You're pie-eyed, Jake says. Pretty nice stuffed dogs certainly brighten up your flat. Come on, just one stuffed dog. I can take them or leave them alone. But listen, Jake, just one stuffed dog. Come on, mean everything in the world to you after you've bought it. Simple exchange of values. You give them money, they give you a stuffed dog. And Jake finally says, we'll get one on the way back. All right, have it your own way. The road to hell paved with unbought stuffed dogs. Not my fault. And even later on, he sees a horse cab. And he goes, going to have that horse cab stuffed for you for Christmas, (laughs) giving all my friends stuffed animals. (laughs) That's great, Ildi. And actually, one of my favorite quotes is also Bill. And he's talking to Jake. And I think this sums up most of our characters in the novel. He says, you're an expatriate. You've lost touch with the soil. You get precious. Fake European standards have ruined you. You drink yourself to death. You become obsessed by sex. You spend all your time talking, not working. You're an expatriate, see? You hang around cafes. Along that same note, as far as fake European standards and values, Jake makes a comment towards the end of the book while he's at a cafe. The waiter seemed a little offended about the flowers of the Pyrenees, so I overtipped him. That made him happy. It felt comfortable to be in a country where it is so simple to make people happy. You can never tell whether a Spanish waiter will thank you. Everything is on such a clear financial basis in France. It is the simplest country to live in. I'm glad you brought up that quote, because before we end our conversation today, I did want to talk just a little bit about the contrast that we're shown between France and Spain. To me, France, and Paris especially, represents the post-World War setting that Hemingway wanted to create. As we said, expatriates, aimless, searching for something new. The traditional values have all been changed and destroyed. The morality of the pre-World War, as we see through Brett, has been absolutely shattered. And then we have Spain with Montoya and Pedro Romero. I think they represent the old world still, the traditional values that haven't quite been changed yet by the war. But we know that change is coming, and I think it's with Brett that Hemingway prefigures some of that change. Scott, I think you mentioned that the Spanish Civil War is about to occur another few years. Right. The setting of the book is 1926, and only seven years from now, all of Spain will be in a complete civil war. 
And that's where their values are going to change. The old ways of Montoya and Pedro Romero, the aficionados, the traditions, the morality, that's all going to be wiped away, and they're going to be left, as is France, with a world of Jakes and Bretts and Robert Kahn's. Absolutely. And Gertrude Stein has a quote that Hemingway puts in the front of the book, and it says, you are all a lost generation. So not only are all of Brett and her friends part of this lost generation, but that might prefigure, like you said, the Spanish culture also. One other interesting sub-theme. There is a strong anti-Jewish sentiment to the book amongst many of the characters. And in just another decade and a half, Germany is going to be in World War II. And of course, that's infamous for what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust. Though, of course, Hemingway didn't know that at the time of this writing. Certainly not. But Hemingway witnessed the same sort of attitude about Jews in particular in France during that generation, which is also going to create Nazi Germany. Now, is Hemingway criticizing this attitude or is he just recording the attitude? My impression is he's recording the attitude. Okay. All right. Well, before we end, Ildi, you mentioned that there's a quote from Gertrude Stein at the beginning of this novel. And as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, there's also a quote from Ecclesiastes that gives us our title, The Sun Also Rises. And I mentioned that we wanted to see whether the quote really does fit the novel as it turns out. What do you think? Well, from Ecclesiastes, it says, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. The sun also riseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to the place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to its circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. All right, now, actually, you have to help me here, because to me, that quote says two different things. It says, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But it also, I think, says, the more things change, the more things change. To me, it's no matter what happens, the earth is going to keep going. People are still going to come in and out of the world. And the experiences that we have, yes, they change us, but people are still going to live their lives. Scott, no matter what happens today, the sun will rise tomorrow? Yes. The opening line to the quote from Ecclesiastes might be the most telling, I thought. The earth abideth forever. Humanity is going to change. Nothing new is under the sun, so to speak. And there will be various cycles of humanity, but the earth abideth forever. And we'll be here again tomorrow. So I think I am right. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And the more things change, the more things change. You're right on both counts, Frank. Excellent. Let's end with me being right. That brings us to the end of our conversation today about the novel The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. I want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Scott and Ildi Rich. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And I really enjoyed having you both here. It was a lot of fun. Joining me now for our EndNotes segment on today's conversation is author and researcher Ted Schwartz. Ted, how are you doing today? Great. How are you? Very good. First question I have for you. We know that The Sun Also Rises is a novel about the post-World War I lost generation, the expatriates. My question is, was Hemingway one of this lost generation, or was he really just chronicling the lost generation? I'd have to say a little bit of each. He was, in his own mind, a chronicler. He was fascinated by it. He had been in the war as an ambulance driver, wounded in the war. But as the years passed, it became pretty obvious that he also was lost during this period. He was shocked by what should have been heroic, wasn't heroic, it was just horrific, and really was trying to understand himself and life around him. Remember, he's only a kid at this point. About how old was he? He started over there when he was 19, 
So the experience that led to this was as an older teenager. Okay, I understand. Let me ask you another question. This is something we really didn't address during our novel conversation, and that's some of the language that Hemingway used, the racial epithets. Everyone knows about Mark Twain and Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer and some of the words that are used in those novels. I was shocked to see some of the words in this novel. I was surprised. Hemingway was from the Midwest, but his first writing was with the Kansas City Star. Very, very bigoted area. Hemingway was typical of his times. He was from money. Father was a doctor. And he looked down on minorities. And this was Hemingway. Not just the blacks, but also the Jews. Yeah. And if you talk about going over to Europe, you're talking about an area where anti-Semitism was intensely on the rise at this point. So he was a product of his time. Right, but that's not to say that he took joy in using these words. I think he used these words to show us some of the social problems that existed. I don't know. In his later years, he was much more sensitive to others than he was in those early years. And he stressed again in the later years that he never used symbolism. So I have the feeling that he was reflecting his own attitudes and seeing them in the people. He was very much a chronicler in his fiction. It's interesting that you say Hemingway didn't use symbols, because I always think of this novel and its bullfighting scenes as being very symbolic. But my real question is, everyone calls this the bullfighting novel. There was very little bullfighting in the novel. I would call this a drinking novel or a fishing novel. He really did more fishing than anything else. You have to understand that this was the first time an American audience was exposed to Pamplona, Spain, and the running of the bulls. So you're dealing with somebody who's introducing them to an odd culture, somebody who loved it. He went over there three times in the early years of his life. And given that, I think that's more why they look at it that way than because it is a novel of bullfighting. Well, if he loved bullfighting, he must have really loved fishing for all the fishing descriptions that we get. It's hard to tell. He uses that a lot. We also know he was manic depressive, and when he was depressed, he came near to suicidal depression. Fishing was a good escape. His father taught him to hunt, which, as we know, at the end of his life was not a good idea. But as to his love of fishing, I can't find in his letters, in various writing, whether or not this was special to him over anything else. Huh, that's interesting, Ted, because some of the fishing scenes in the novel seemed like some of the most peaceful, happy times that Hemingway was writing about. And Ted, what about all this drinking? we got to remember, he was manic depressive, and there was no medication except alcohol. So he was constantly self-medicating with people self-medicating for various reasons. The place to go is bars. He's writing about men who had either been in war or survived a period of horrific warfare. They were in post-traumatic stress disorder, which was then called shell shock. And again, the only thing they knew to do was drink. And boy, did they do it well. And everywhere. And everywhere, yes. Well, Ted, again, I want to thank you for coming in and bringing your endnotes on today's novel conversation about the novel The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. Thank you. Always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure for me as well. And I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Today, I had a conversation about the novel The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Novel Conversations is a production of the Front Porch People. Listen to more great conversations at thefrontporchpeople.com. Thank you for listening. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. 
Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.